Would you join with me in prayer? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you for today. I thank you for the opportunity you give us today to open up your word. I pray that you fill us with your Holy Spirit. Open our hearts up to you even as we open your word up to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I love me some history, and I really like um, communication history, because it's a communication major. So 90, days, 90 years ago today was the first of what we know as the fireside chats from FDR, from Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president. Nobody had ever done that before. I mean, presidents just didn't use the radio. But that week, he had closed banks across the United States to avoid the run that was, that was going to destroy the economy of the nation. And so he got on the radio that Sunday night to say, let me explain this. And the idea that a president would just say, let me just sit down and tell you stuff. I'm not going to candy coat it. I'm not going to, to defend it. And in something that I think our modern politicians should probably learn from, I'm not blaming anybody. Not attacking, nor am I weaseling out from blame. I'm the one that made this proclamation. I'm the one that closed it. And here's why. I'm going to tell you things you don't necessarily want to hear, but I'm going to say it because we need to make sure that we're on top of this. It's not the banking system's fault. It's that we misused it. You ever, you ever see It's a Wonderful Life? You ever watch that? Then you understand, well, that's not where the money is. The money's not here. It's in his house. It's like... You, you can't all get your money right now. It'll break it. But it's not a problem with the system. It's a problem with us misusing it. And so FDR called us to faith. He even used the word. I need you to have faith. I need you to have faith that it's the system that's not broken. It's us that's broken. And I need you to look at all those thousands that wanted to get all their money out right now. They wanted what they wanted, when they wanted it right now. Don't do what they do. Don't do that. All right? It was a relatively brief fireside chat. But the result was immediate and amazing. Everybody went to church that morning and were like, <laughs> that night they heard the president say, it's going to be okay, but you're going to have to roll up your sleeves and work on this. Everybody went, okay. I'm going to argue that this section of Ephesians that we're going through is a little bit like Paul's fireside chat. The first half of Ephesians was really uplifting. People are like, I just love that we're going through Ephesians. It's so positive. And you're so positive. Oh, this is so great. You, uh-huh. Unequivocally. Uh-huh. But the second half of Ephesians is Paul saying, now let's, let's put feet to that. Let's, let's work on that. And in this section of Ephesians, he says, the system, God's system isn't broken, but we misuse it. And this is why we're abusing ourselves. We're abusing our, our, our loved ones. We're abusing our own bodies. And we need to roll up our sleeves and stop it. So he's going to say some things that people are not necessarily going to like. Which means that since he's saying it and I'm going through Ephesians, I'm going to end up saying things people may not necessarily like. Open up Ephesians if you haven't already done so. Because we're going through and we're in chapter 5 now. And chapter 5 begins with him saying... Be imitators of God, therefore, and I have to stop, because technically, in the original, the first word of that verse is therefore. And i got to figure out what the therefore is therefore, right? And if you go, you keep doing this. I know. The original letter, they just read it all at once. They didn't have to keep getting context. So unless you want me to give a sermon over all six chapters all at once, I, there's that. We'll spend the rest of the day. But 
Well, that's what you need to do is just listen to these sermons back to back to back to back to back. But we need to look back. As we read last week in chapter 4, verse 22, he said, you guys were taught in regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new by the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Take off the old gnarly clothes, even the ones that made you feel really warm and comfy. I know you really liked them. Put those clothes off because you were given a brand new wardrobe at the cross. Put on these fresh, new, clean clothes and make that decision every day because you will be encouraged to go back to what you're familiar with. You'll be encouraged to go dig that stuff out of the rubbish bin. You don't want to do that. But think about think about that last little bit here. It, I love where he says, you weren't just given some sort of cosmic do-over where he goes, doink, start again, go with what you had. You're given a new nature. And to be like the nature that we were always intended to be. Back in Genesis, you can't get past the first chapter of Genesis and we're told that God created man in his own image, right? In the image of God, he created a male, female. He created us. You and I, we were created to be in the image of God, reflecting his character, reflecting his nature, reflecting his family. And, and I don't mean that that means that God looks like us or we look like God. It's not like God has two feet. God, God created male and female in his image. So is God male or female? You go, well, they're both... We're not talking about that you look in the mirror like God looks. Jesus said that God is spirit. Paul said that Christ is the image of the invisible God. This is talking about a resemblance that you're a person, resemblance that you have a spirit, resemblance that you have a will, resemblance you can make choices. You were created to resemble in your heart of hearts our Father God. That's what we were created to be, to have his name, to have his authority, to have his inheritance as his beloved children, to have a family resemblance in everything that we do to reflect that family resemblance. So when we keep choosing the broken toys that keep getting thrown away, the ones that you, you go, I always like this one. You go, yeah, but you always cut yourself on it because it's broken or you choke on it. And I gave you brand new toys that are really, really nice. We go, yeah, I know, but I really like the old toys that keep hurting me. Look, I'm going to tell, let's play with my sister. Ah! You know, like, don't play with those anymore. And your loving father says, I, I got rid of those for a reason. I know you liked them, but there's a reason. Well, if, that's the, if, that's, if that's the point, then it's not the toy giver that's at fault here, is it? It's not the toy giving system that's at fault. It's us going, I want the broken one that hurts me. I want the one that draws blood when I play with it. It's okay, it's not my blood, it's her blood. You go, don't, no! Don't do that, and it's not God's fault. Therefore, he says in Ephesians 4, 25, each of you must put off falsehood, speak truthfully to his neighbor, because we're all members of one body. Because, remember, we just said, everything in the first half gets applied in the second half, right? The second half is just an application of the first. He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you've been sealed. Don't do that. Don't break his heart. Don't choose to be not holy when everything he's doing is trying to help you be holy. Get rid of all that bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Throw out that crud, all that stained, yucky clothes. Instead, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. And I love that. He's like, put off falsehood, put on 
truthfulness. Put off anger. Put on dealing with anger healthily. Put off stealing. Put on work. Put off unwholesome talk. Put on edifying talk. Everything that you... Take off bitterness. Put on kindness. There's a parallel to everything. He's like, I'm not just saying, get rid of all that junk. Be perfect. Go. He's like, no, no. This. You've been given a whole new wardrobe. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. And there's our context. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of of love just as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And I love the parallels there. Forgive like Christ forgave you. Love like Christ loved you. Do you see what God did? Yeah, do that. Do you see what God didn't do? Yeah, don't do that. Are you doing something that isn't what God would do? Yeah, well, don't do that. Are you doing something that God would do? Yeah, good. Go do that. You want to be mirrors of God. You want to be reflecting him in, our, in your life. That's what, that's what you're supposed to do. There's a reason why Alex looks an awful lot like me and Wendy. Mostly like Alex. But there's still a family resemblance. And there always will be. So do that. Lean into that. This, this isn't a laundry list of things you've got to remember to do and not remember to do. This is remembering who you are and who you aren't anymore. If you have accepted Christ as your Savior, if his blood shed on the cross washes you clean, you're not just, oh, cool. It's not just a do-over. You're a new creation. You're an adopted child of the living God. I want to live like we remember that. So he says, among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are all improper for God's holy people. And, and, and you don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit, right? Again, he's trying very hard to work in you to help you to be set apart for God. And you go, yeah, 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 broken toys. And he's like, no, no, don't do that. Okay, now this is technically where I'm going to lose some people. And I know that. I'm aware of that. Again, I'm just reading through Paul. But I know that I'm going to lose some people nowadays. And I, and, I, and I get it. And maybe they even loved Ephesians up to this point. But the moment that a pastor or a Bible uses the phrase sexual immorality, all of a sudden people are going to be like, where is this going? And I, and I know that. And, and that, the hackles rise. And they rise in part because, let's be honest, the church has been moralistic about this rather than just being moral we have tried to make everybody else do what we seem to think the bible seems to be saying and you can't you can't change a life from the outside in i get that but let's be honest the other reason why people get upset with this is because they really don't like to hear it i mean the easy answer would be to sit there and go yeah people just people like their sin you're also being a jerk about it Okay, so the easy answer is, go. you know why people have a problem with this? Because you've been a jerk about it. Yeah. And they like their sin. I, I'm sorry, the beauty of it is it can be a both end. Are you wrong and they're wrong? Yeah. How about we both not do that? How about we both, we both want to honor Christ ultimately? Now, the best way to make sure that a non-Christian honors Christ is what? Not be a jerk, but ultimately... Honor Christ yourself, but ultimately, the best way to make a non-Christian honor Christ 
is to make them want to honor Christ. Huh. Yeah, it would help if they were Christians. So before I go, you, live like you honor Christ, I don't even know who that is. Do it! <laughs> it's my wife, I can do this. But the beauty of it is to sit there and go, the best way to help her to honor Christ is to say, let me tell you about Jesus and why this is so cool and why I want to. So that she goes, oh, I want that. You know why? Because then I don't need to keep spinning that plate. It spins itself, right? I can be horribly mercenary about this and say that happens to be the most efficient way of doing it beyond just being biblical. But the Bible's fairly consistent about this one. Paul in 1 Corinthians says, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. Run the other direction. Every other sin that you commit is from outside your body, but this is inside your body, and your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He's in there working. You've received him from God. You're not your own. You are bought with a price, so honor God with your body. Even Jesus listed among the same sinful corruptions as murder and slander and pride. He says, in, in Mark's gospel, he says, from within, from out of a man's heart comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. Those are not things that honor God. Actually, okay, I can't, it's kind of interesting. Did you notice that both Jesus and Paul list greed alongside sexual sins? Why? Why is that? Could it be that both of those are about you wanting what you want when you want it and feeling totally justified and wanting what you want and lusting for more? And here's also where I'm going to lose people because a lot of people at this point will go, okay, all right, well, what exactly do you mean by sexual immorality? Where exactly are you going? The most conservative people want to know so that they know exactly what they can judge other people by, right? The most liberal want to know so that they know exactly what to judge me by. Oh, okay, so you're calling that sin. Actually, the Bible... You know what? Do your own Bible study sometime. You want to figure out what constitutes sexual immorality? Do a Bible study on it sometime. It's a little convicting, and it'll annoy somebody in the room. But you can go figure out what the Bible says. The key word here to understand what Paul is getting at is not pornea, is not the sexual immorality part. It's the word hint. What do you mean by that? I mean, I don't want, I don't want a whisper of it. This is what the word's saying. I don't want a mention of it. I don't want, I don't want to hear one whisper that there's any hint in any way that you guys are doing anything that dishonors God. Like what? Is anything in the ballpark of what anybody's going to go, oh, I see. I see what you guys think you can get away with. Don't do that. Does it look like you're doing something? Yeah, don't do that. I want you to flee from even the appearance of evil. By that you mean any hint of it. If what you want is a list, my guess is that you're looking for something to judge me by, them by, something that you can say, oh, so these things, which means I get to do that. That's not on the list. I don't care. Any way that I list it at this point diminishes what Paul is saying. Because Paul's point is, I don't want to hear one hint of this. Not one tiny little bit. It's like when Jesus boiled down the whole law to two commandments. He's like, everything pretty much covered by this. Right? Remember that? Paul says, 
No sexual morality. And by that, you mean nothing that even looks like it. Meaning, nothing that even looks like it. Take it seriously. Don't go there. If there's a question, don't go there. Because this isn't about being judging. This is about trying to reflect God. It's trying to honestly reflect God in our lives. And it's me trying to honestly reflect God to you. Exactly. Because, Paul says in verse 3, because these are improper for God's holy people. You are set apart for God. Rule of thumb. Would it be appropriate to do in God's presence? If not, maybe don't do it. If so, do it to God's glory. Second, is there ever a time when you're not in God's presence? This is why Paul goes on and says, nor should there be obscenity, this filthy, shameful, twisted, disfigured deviancy from how God sculpted you. No foulness like that. No foolish talk. The word here is literally moronic. Don't be a moron. Don't do that. Don't abandon wisdom to serve nothing but your gut inclination. No coarse joking, harsh, biting, filthy humor that tears other people down and lifts up the most grotesque parts. Cruise Netflix and see what's in their stand-up comedy queue. Tell me I'm wrong about what the world wants to revel in. Don't do what they do. But at the end of this, take this off section. I love that. At the end of this, Paul tosses in one very intriguing put on. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But rather thanksgiving. I love that. How is thanksgiving the antithesis of the rest of what he's been talking about here? We focus so much on what we want. I want what I want when I want it, and I want it now, and I want it this way, and if I don't get it, I am dissatisfied. And the worst thing in the world is dissatisfaction. Am I dissatisfied? Then the world is not right. We focus on complaining, we focus on attacking, we focus on ripping things down because I am not satisfied. My needs are unmet. I'm not saying that it's wrong to meet your needs, but that focus of constant dissatisfaction. I am not comfortable with this. I, I need this. How much of that would just go away if you lived in genuine gratitude for the blessings that you have? If you said, I'm sucking air today, I have a house, I have food, I have people that love me and that I love, I have a mission, I have an opportunity. You go, well, you don't have a career, you're just pushing a broom. It's a mission field. I have an opportunity and I have a mission. My day has meaning and my God is with me. If we live in that, that gratitude, how much of the... This isn't what I wanted. That person was not there for me. I didn't like this weather. I didn't like that thing. You know what? The, the DMV with the, uh, hospital is not very... I mean, always, I, I, not my president. I, 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 how much of that goes away if you go, at its core, my God is God. And my citizenship is in a kingdom so much better than this place. 
And I praise God that I get to be an ambassador of that every day in everything I say, in every Insta-Face twit quote. And I get to be an ambassador. How much did that change things? If instead of anxiety and bitterness or a lust for self-gratification, what if you prayed with thanksgiving? Philippians tell us that if we pray with genuine thanksgiving that the, the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's all designed to work together. The system isn't broken. You were designed to work right. If you have the right heart, the right clothes, the right attitude, the right family, the right outcomes will outcome. Too often we echo the world where we go, I'd like to do everything wrong and still have the right outcomes. Can I do everything wrong and still have a good outcome? You go, no. Why is everything bad happening to me? You've made seriously bad choices. Oh, you're judging. Uh, you asked. Oh, it was rhetorical. I'm sorry. I you asked me why, why the fork is sticking out of your eye. I was going to say because you stuck it there. I'm sorry I answered your question. Now, of course, I'm saying that while I've got a fork in my hand going, <laughs> so I'd really like you to stop me before I stick one in my eye, right? That's how this works. Not judgy, but whoa, keep it out of the eye, buddy. For of this you can be sure, and this is technically where we left off last week. For this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Nope. There's no inheritance waiting. The question even came up in Sunday school. How do we decide who's actually going to be saved or not? Isn't it easy for us as Christians to go, the line is the other side of me. Here, I'm saved and anybody who's not me. Paul's like, let me be clear. Did I tell you what not to wear? Yeah. Anybody devoted to that? Boop, they're on the other side of the line. And every conservative goes, huh. All the liberals go, uh-huh, huh. Just reading Paul. And why does he say that? I mean, think about that. Why? Is it because these are apparently unforgivable sins? Apparently we have a litany of unforgivable sins here, right? No, it's not about level of sin. It's not about, well, this particular thing is so naughty. It's the focus of the sin. If your lust is for more wealth, more sex, more power, more money, more, 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 more for you, the one whose life is devoted to has no more room on his throne for God. There's just no room. That idol is too big. Didn't Paul already say back in the last chapter, chapter 4, verse 18, that the world is darkened by their understanding and they're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts? How can there be an inheritance for people who have separated themselves from God? At that point, it's not even judgment. It's just physics. I burn the bridge between me and God. How do I get to the other side? And you go, you don't. Luckily, God's a really good bridge builder. We can work on this. But you don't. Having lost all sensitivity, Paul had said, they've given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. I'm talking about people who live for this place, live for their fill-in-the-blank whatever. 
It's what they want, and they want more of it. And it seems more and more like this is because they get more and more hungry for it and more and more lustful for it, which means they need more and more of it to satisfy. And since it's all about satisfaction, then they need more to feel satisfied. But they don't feel satisfied because they've already stretched their belly, so now they're still hungry. So they need more. And they focus so much on their hunger that all they ever feel is hungry. How can I, as a Christian, be judgmental toward people if I look at it accurately and say, good Lord, you're starving and you don't know where food is. I don't want to judge you. I want to show you food. I'm one beggar showing another beggar where bread is. I don't want to judge. I want to say, look, there's a cornucopia. You never, ever have to go hungry again. You guys are lost, literally lost in your cravings. But, Paul says, love that word. Love that word. But, you, however, but, didn't come to know Christ that way. That's that's where the world is. But don't do what they do. You know that this place is temporary. Don't get lost in it. You've been given a, an entire wardrobe of fresh, clean clothes. Don't wear that filth. Don't do that. So let no one deceive you with empty words, hollow words, words that sound good but have no truth in them. Don't let anyone tickle your ears and tell you that evil is fine. Don't do that. Because of such things, God's wrath is coming on those who are disobedient. And I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I'm not supposed to say that. I get that. I know. Most of the time I don't preach that sort of thing. It's a trigger word, I know. But anybody that tells you that there is no wrath of God is skipping over verses and selling you something. Don't buy it. God does have wrath. But I kind of think it's the kind of wrath that a father has when he goes, stop it! What are you doing? Do not stick cutlery in your face! Why is my dad angry with me? Because you keep shoving forks in your eye and he loves you and he's told you repeatedly not to. They're going to put cork on the end of your fork so you stop hurting yourself. Stop it! Paul says, therefore, don't be partners with them. Do not partake. Don't take part with what they're doing. Don't do what they do. For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Don't do what they did, which is what you used to do. It's the flip side of what John says in 1 John when he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. Take part with that. Be in fellowship with that. Do that, not them, this. Who are the influences in your life? Maybe seek that out. What's the healthy thing in your life? Do that. But it's even more than that. In First John, he says, you know, walk in the light. Here in Ephesians, Paul says, well, now you are the light. You are the light. You be the light. Live as children of light. You were created in the image of God, recreated in the image of God, not only to reflect God's light, but to be God's light in the world because you have the Holy Spirit in you. You get to be a light bulb because of your family resemblance. So let God work in you. 
today, every day. Let God work in you. Actively let the Holy Spirit work in you to set you apart more and more, to scrub the outside of the bulb so that it's clear, to polish the mirrors so that you reflect better. Every day, let him help you to be more and more sculpted the way you were intended to be sculpted, to be a person who naturally reflects God, even in the midst of a broken, darkened world. Not just to act like light, but to be light. For the fruit of the light, not to mix a metaphor, Paul, but the fruit of the, the fruit of the light. I don't even have to be able to, okay. The fruit, the natural fruit of light, consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth. That did never fly on Netflix. It's a boring movie, but that's okay because we're not trying to keep in style with the world, are we? Are we? Are we? trying to keep in step with the Spirit. I want to find out what pleases God, and I want to do that. So he says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. He keeps coming back to this. They're empty. They're hollow. They're futile. They're fruitless. Don't do that. Lights has fruit. Again, mixing the metaphor. It produces stuff. Darkness is just the absence of light. Don't do what the world does is, by definition, hollow and hollowing. It hollows you out. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, which is technically a callback to verse 3, isn't it? He, he, he's like, I don't even want to hear a mention of sexual immorality coming from you guys. Just like it's shameful to even mention what they do and think it's good and demand that other people think it's good. The world doesn't just want to do what it does. It wants you to say... And that's good for you. That's okay. That's empowering. That's excellent. You do that. And if anybody goes, oh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's so great, you go, oh, hate. No, love. I don't think sticking a fork in your eye is good. Oh, you hate my eye. I love your eye. Don't stick a fork in it. Of course, there's somebody standing next to you. You go, yeah, we an idiot would do that. You go, please do not be on my side. Please do not be on my side. You don't help. Of course, there's somebody on the other side going, if they want to stick forks in their eyes, God love them. Jesus wants them to do that too. No. No, he doesn't. It's shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. It's, it's light that makes everything visible. And that's good, right? It's good. Don't you want that? Everything should be open and clear and honest and in the daylight. Isn't that what you want? In a perfect world, isn't that what we want? Isn't it? In a perfect world, isn't that what you want? This is why it said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine. I have no idea where it was said. He's quoting something. I don't, I, I don't know what it is. To him, maybe? In a perfect world. Yes, wake up, old sleeper, rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. Maybe he's quoting a hymn. Maybe he's paraphrasing a poem. Maybe he's, maybe he's on a greeting card. He's quoting Star Wars, the first century edition. I have no idea what he's quoting. But he's quoting it going, you've heard this, right? And they go, well, yeah. And he's like, then that's good, yes, that Christ shines on everything. That's good, isn't it? So let's reflect that light. Let's be that light. Of course, that brings up a scary thought. If light exposes everything, and we say in a perfect world we want that, 
but cockroaches scurry from the light to the corners where good people are drawn to the light. If suddenly everything in your life, every action, every word, every heartbeat, everything going on in your head, suddenly were utterly transparent to everybody else, would you say, praise God, let me reflect God, or would you be tempted to scurry just a smidge? Or is that a depends on the day kind of question? But ultimately, what would the world be like if that were the case? I mean, immediately, what would it be like? You go, unpleasant. Ultimately, what would the world be like? After all the dust settles, after all the scurrying is over, after all the games playing and lying and hiding and mistruths and misdirections and guilt, after all that dies, what would the world be like? There's no pretense. There's no hiding. There's just light. What would that be like? Oh, wait, Revelation tells us what that would be like. No more crying. No more guilt. No more fear. That's where you're from. That's your kingdom. Don't do what this place does. Do what that place does. Be there, here. Be ambassadors of that, here. So be very careful, he says, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. He kind of makes up his own word here because he's Paul, and he does that frequently. He's kind of my hero. He's already talked about being foolish. Don't do that. And he goes, be wise, not unwise. I mean, foolishness is bad, but I'm saying focus on being not the opposite of wiseness. Don't do non-wiseness. Be careful how you live. Not a non-wiseness, but wiseness. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. This place is broken. It's dark. And I don't say that to be gloomy. I'm saying that to be accurate and I'm just reading Paul. If you go, oh, I'm actually very comfy here. Or you demand and go, no, how dare you say that the world is evil? The world is a beautiful place. How dare you? I'm like, I'm just reading scripture. What are you wearing? What are you wearing? Don't be foolish, he says. And this time he does mean foolish. Don't be mindless. Understand what the Lord's will is. Use your brain. Use your mind. Use your spirit. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery and, when you think about it, non-wiseness and mindlessness, right? Don't do that. Instead, be filled with the spirit, who's the antithesis of unwiseness and mindlessness. He's the one that helps you be wise. He's the one who helps you think straight. He's the one who plumbs the depths of God's thoughts. He's where capital T truth comes from. So don't grieve the Spirit. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music to your heart from the Lord and to the Lord. Have some joyfulness and some thankfulness that overflows throughout your life into everybody's lives around you. Live like that because that's your kingdom. That's where you're from. Do that. Always. What does he say? Always doing what? Giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord as authority, our Messiah who is anointed by God the Father to save our souls, wash us clean from all the filth of this place. 
give us a brand new wardrobe and to get out all those rags and filthy things so that we don't have to wear those anymore. If I really like them, yeah. But you don't have to wear those anymore. Actually, that's, that's all one sentence in Greek. I should read it like that. Don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's all one big sentence, because it's all one big cohesive thought. It's not a laundry list. It's a, live like this. You you see this snapshot. Do you see this? Do that. Be that. Which is interesting because now we're back to where we started. He starts with this whole thing of don't do this junk, have thanksgiving. And he ends with don't do this junk, have thanksgiving. Live like that. Because your life is always going to reflect something. It's always going to reflect what you value, what you cherish, what you serve. That's what's going to be on the throne of your life and that's what you're going to be reflecting. So do we reflect this place? Do our lusts and our empty chasm of hunger just bounce back and forth, back and forth, back and forth like a Facebook algorithm till that's all that you can see? All that I ever hear is the stuff I always click on and this is all that there is. Is that what you worship? Or do you choose to put Christ on the throne and say, I reflect Christ and he reflects on me and I reflect Christ and this just keeps getting stronger and stronger and richer and richer. Your life is going to reflect something. So choose this day to saturate your life with the Holy Spirit, reflecting him and the image of God and the bright, new, fresh, clean clothes you've been given. Do that and live in thankfulness. Live in the thankfulness of saying, I can, I, I'm not always having to fight for this and fight for that and grapple for this and arm wrestle for that and attack about this. And I, I, can, I can submit to one another because... Because I'm already submitting to Christ and now so are you. So we're all on our knees. Of course, I'm going to lose some people with that now too. That's next week. Come prepared to hate everything I say. Wait a minute, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I apologize. Come prepared to hate everything Paul says. Or put it in this context. Of, wait a minute, is it about me sitting on a throne? Because I don't need to bow a knee to anybody. Or is it about Christ sitting on the throne? And I say, let's all bow together. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you so much. I thank you for all that you've given us. I thank you for all that you are. I thank you for who we are in you. I thank you. So many things that we're afraid of, so many things we're anxious about, so many things. It's not that the world isn't as scary as we say it is. It's not that it's not broken and evil. And yet somehow you look at us and go, but it's not your home, and you won't be here forever. Give us perspective, Lord, your perspective. Give us your family resemblance to reflect. And thank you, Father, for loving us well. In Jesus' name, amen.